Welcome to the New Health Club podcast. Psychedelics are experiencing a renaissance, developing into a tool to help us go through life. But what are LSD, magic mushrooms, psilocybin and MDMA or ketamine are exactly doing for our mental health, personal progress and optimization? Will they change our lifestyles and lives forever? I'm sure they will. On the New Health Club podcast, I talk to real innovators, thought leaders and disruptors from the emerging world of psychedelics. Enjoy. This podcast deals with drugs. Drugs are dangerous. Furthermore, the use and or trade of drugs can be punishable by law. Please keep this in mind. This podcast is not suitable for people under the age of 18. Hi and welcome to a new episode of the New Health Club podcast. Today we talk about love drugs. Could we fall in and out of love with the support of psychedelics? Sounds like a scenario of the future, but it's the topic of Brian D. Earp's book, which is called Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships. Brian is Associate Director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy at Yale University and the Hastings Center and Research Fellow in the Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. He has written the Love Drugs book with his co-author Julian Savulescu. I inhaled this book, I have to say, because it's talking about love drugs and anti-love drugs, about love potions, about MDMA for couples therapy, and what biochemical and psychedelic interventions in our love lives could mean if we think about it or if we think it through. Would this make our love lives easier or would it make them even more complex? So let's hear what Brian has to say. So we are here with Brian D. Earp. <laughs> Is that correct? <laughs> That's right, yeah. And uh, so we're talking today on Skype because we both thought it was better not to travel, right? I mean, it makes it easier. Um, but the book, Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships, is like I said it earlier, I kind of inhaled this book because I feel there are like so many things in this book, if it comes to relationships, that would actually, if you uh, think them through, it's like, I mean, it would change like the whole idea of love and relationships. You could say that, right? I mean, let's say a couple of years forward. So, but before we jump in, maybe you introduce yourself um, for our listeners? Sure. My name is Brian. I'm a, a cognitive scientist and a philosopher, and officially my, my title is that I'm the associate director of something called the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy. So that's related to this book in that I'm thinking generally about what are the ethical and social implications of you know, technologies and things that will change our way of thinking about ourselves and our place in the world. And uh, my co-author is Julian Sadlescu, who's the chair of practical ethics at the University of Oxford. Okay, so you guys actually worked, you started to work on this idea, you said, like eight years ago, right? To, to kind of figure out the whole kind of broader context. So, and I mean, to break it like down very, very shortly in the beginning, it's really about will there be love drugs and will there be anti-love drugs? <laughs> Which I feel is also like the, um, the structure of the book. So um, basically, can you fall in love with psychedelics or can you fall out of love with psychedelics if you think it through in our context? So maybe just, of course, like why, what was really fascinating for you to, to write a whole book about chemical imbalances and love relationships? Well, one reason why we think it's 
timely is because there are a lot of drugs that we ingest for other purposes that undoubtedly have an effect on our romantic neurochemistry, but we don't tend to study the interpersonal effects of drugs in Western medicine. So we do spend quite a lot of time talking about psychedelic drugs as well as MDMA, which is the active ingredient in ecstasy. And these are coming back into mainstream medicine now as potential treatments for drug-assisted therapy as a way of dealing with uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder and incurable depression and so forth. But um, there are other more mundane drugs like selective serotonin reuptake, reuptake inhibitors, which are the most commonly prescribed drug for depression, also for some anxiety disorders. And this drug interacts with the serotonin system, and the serotonin system uh, is involved in our romantic uh, attachments that we form. And every, every neurochemical underpinning of our falling in love with someone is something that's reasonably well understood and can be manipulated chemically. So the first big gesture of the book is just to say, if we're going to ingest drugs for other purposes, we're going to be prescribing millions and millions of doses of serotonin-affecting drugs. <laughs> well, uh, so now, now that we're bringing back these even more powerful drugs into medicine as a treatment for individual-level uh, mental health issues, um, there's a precedent for using these in a couple's counseling setting. So in this case, it's not just a speculative gesture to maybe we should look at the interpersonal effects of the drugs. But in the 1980s, MDMA and psilocybin were being used as adjuncts to couples therapy. And people who already had a loving connection but felt that that love was fading, they, they had lost a sense of intimacy or they had built up a bunch of defense mechanisms and weren't really engaging with each other, they would uh, go to these therapy sessions with a, a, a trained counselor who would administer the drug to both of them then they would very often relate to each other in a way whereby they could enhance the effects of traditional therapy, not replace it with the drug, but find themselves more able to communicate and connect on, a, on an authentic level. And so that's something that we spend a lot of time talking about in the book as well. So, and that means like you think that, let's say, couples therapy with the support of the MDMA will actually come back very soon? I think there's evidence that things are moving in that direction. So the main trials that have been approved by the regulatory agencies in the United States are for post-traumatic stress disorder and other very serious diagnosable mental illnesses. But there is a small pilot study that's been done by some of the same researchers where instead of just bringing in the person with PTSD, they also bring in that person's romantic partner. And they do engage in a joint therapy session where both of them uh, are administered the drug. And this is really important, and this is good work, because post-traumatic stress disorder, of course, doesn't just affect you. Sometimes when somebody's in a marriage and they come home from a war, they've suffered some other trauma, it's almost like you can't recognize the person that you fell in love with. The person is now potentially physically aggressive or prone to panic attacks mm -hmm. and so forth. And so it can have serious ramifications for, for loving relationships. So it's a very good idea, and we definitely approve of this shift in the research now to a more relational context. How does... PTSD affect the couple? And then also, how does this potentially powerful and transformative treatment affect the couple? Mm -hmm. So what I heard about it so far is that you, let's say, even if you don't have like a PTSD background, like you could actually use it also, let's say, if a couple is completely estranged after a while, although they kind of, I mean, were once not estranged, so that they actually able to at least kind of communicate again on a different level again or actually maybe even find in that um, chemical support that they might not be together anymore like faster than without chemical support let's call it that way 
Exactly. I think some people might have the idea that MDMA is just a, a pro-love drug that draws yeah. people together how incompatible they may be. But it doesn't quite work like that. I mean, it does increase in the moment a sense of warmth and openness to the other person's perspective, and it can draw you emotionally closer to the person while the drug is active. But what it also can do is, is it, it can draw you more close to your own emotions and your own reflections on things that you may have been uh, avoiding dealing with. And so because it temporarily reduces a kind of hair trigger fear response that you might have about your own memories, your own problems in the relationship that you usually find it hard to address, for some couples they may find uh, in, in having a very honest and, and forthright communication with each other, mm -hmm. coming, coming at it from a place of love, that maybe they oughtn't to be together. Maybe they decide that all things considered, the relationship should end. So mm -hmm. a, a prior question in all these cases is, is this a relationship that's worth sustaining? And in some cases, the answer is no, especially mm -hmm. if there's abuse or severe sure. mistreatment of some kind. Maybe yeah. the relationship should end. There's not a goal that we should all try to last in whatever relationship we're in, no mm -hmm. matter what, uh, until the end of time, especially if it's, if it's uh, harmful in certain ways. And so um, the, 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 the idea about these drugs, again, is not that they just cause love or cause uh, a lack of love rather that they facilitate insights into a relationship that go along the same pathways of the kinds of work that we might conventionally do to try to either improve or end a relationship. So if you're mm -hmm. trying to improve a relationship, you might go to couples counseling and try to use talk therapy as a way to get closer to your partner, and this should enhance the effects of that if it's used in the right way. Similarly, if you're trying to leave a partner, there are drugs that you can take that can dampen your emotional uh, mm -hmm. connection to your partner, and you might do that in addition to all the conventional things you do, like Stop looking at their pictures on Facebook and, you know, yeah. don't uh, talk to them every day. You know, there are all sorts of things we do to try to affect our feelings as it is. Yeah. These drugs wouldn't replace those measures. They would supplement them. So that means, I mean, you just said it, that it's kind of, a, I mean, there is kind of a, another level of addiction now with social media that you kind of, oh, has that person something new on Instagram? Has that person something new on Facebook? And Like even when you sh were not supposed to look at them anymore as something, you would actually be triggered in your neural pathways, I guess, through algorithms to just look yeah. at it all the time, which you didn't have as an addiction, let's say, 10 years ago, 15 years ago or something, right? There's a, there's a big debate about when the term addiction should be applied. Some people think that social media is straightforwardly addicted in much the same way that something like gambling can be. Mm. Or cocaine, uh, right? Other people think that they should reserve the term addiction for the effects of certain kinds of of drugs, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but certainly it's the case that, that Facebook doesn't care about your relational health per se. They take care about boosting their advertising revenue, and so if they show you a link or suggest that you might want to check out the pictures of uh, your partner, um, it's very hard to avoid that temptation for some people. Yeah. And so, definitely thinking about, mm -hmm. about how we can manage our relationships in this new online world is a is a, a new frontier of relational research. Mm -hmm. Like you write a lot about, in the beginning, you write about jealousy, how it is actually kind of structurally related possibly to OCD in some people's cases, which means obsessive compulsive disorder. And then you write about how you treated a person, like there was a trial where a person got treated um, because they were very jealous and like a psychiatrist found that they had signs of OCD. So they treated their jealousy basically with medication that is actually meant to treat OCD. So that means you could actually have a pill against jealousy very soon. But actually, I mean, the work that exists to suggest this connection comes from two angles. One is that 
in terms of the symptomology, basically how you behave and think and act, there's quite a lot of overlap, both behaviorally and phenomenologically, between extreme jealousy and obsessive compulsive disorder. So if you have obsessive compulsive disorder, you often find yourself engaged in these repetitive routines, and you might rationally know that they aren't asking them to explain everything about their past relationships, and you know it's not helpful, you know it's hurting mm-hmm. the relationship, but you find yourself nevertheless obsessively drawn to doing this in this repetitive way. And so um, some of the subjective feelings and also the behaviors are similar. That's one line of evidence. And then the other line of evidence is that, at least in this one case study that was published in a, in a journal by a psychiatrist, the, the psychiatrist found that treating OCD, uh, which wasn't actually diagnosed in this case, he says he treated the person as if he had OCD, mm-hmm. because what he had was jealousy. He had the symptoms of jealousy. But he, he used the same medications and cognitive therapies that are often used to treat OCD, and he found that this did indeed alleviate the person's extreme, unproductive, relationship-destroying jealousy. And so this is one way where you have to realize that we often have a drug or a treatment that we give to someone for a specific purpose, only because that's what we intend the drug for. But that doesn't mean that's all the drug can do. Mm-hmm. So in this case, it actually was an SSRI, or a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, in this case, along with cognitive behavioral therapy. And the point is, what that drug is, we often call it an antidepressant pill. But that's just because that's what we use it for. But what it is, is a serotonin booster. And serotonin is involved in all sorts of processes. And so if, uh, if the effect of the drug is multidimensional, but we're only measuring one of the dimensions, then we're going to be missing the ways in which these drugs are affecting our lives, including interpersonal uh, uh, mental functions like jealousy. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, um, this also basically then goes the other way around that you, I mean, you, you write a little bit about like the history of love potions and how it was always basically, I mean, around in every culture, basically. So, um, so do you think, I mean, that love potions could also seem to make a comeback in a way? Because, for example, I know a lot of people in the meantime that actually met while being on psilocybin. <laughs> and it totally connects it in a very different way. And they're still very much in love and together because they connected on a different level. Which sounds like, if you, if you hear it, it's like, well, okay, yeah, they just had a wild night out or what. But I don't think there's, that's just the only thing. There's more to this than that. There's a question of whether you gain something from that experience that is authentic and that can be integrated in with your, with your daily patterns. So many people who go hiking in the mountains or have some other transformative experience, they find that when they go back to their daily life, they want to take that experience with them. They don't want to just keep it as some special separate thing and then go back to their daily patterns. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine being somebody in a heightened state of mind, finding that you do really connect on that level. And then maybe you do find that you can build a life together or some sort of relationship together that draws on the insights that you feel you gain from that special experience. So whether it's mediated by a drug or by some other perspective changing intervention, there's always going to be the question of, is the perspective that I've gained in this altered state something that's authentic and useful and valuable, or is it something that's misleading or highly contingent or only exists in this special context? And you, you have to make that decision no matter what the, the trigger of the perspective change it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's probably a good way to, to look at it. But just quickly coming back, what you said earlier when you talked about um, SSRIs or so-called antidepressants, um, and I, I thought it was interesting in a book that you brought something up that nobody kind of really talks about it yet, maybe, like how people in relationships, let's say where one party has to take <clears throat> antidepressants and then kind of uh, the sex life suddenly stops because they don't have any drive anymore 
or um, let's say the um, I even heard that people can fall out of love if they do antidepressants with their partner. So, and you brought up this really cool, like this interesting article: uh, the couple who medicates together, dot dot dot, stays together. So, I mean, that seems to me like a really big topic that's coming towards us where nobody kind of ever talks about what happens if if your freshly kind of in love partners says, okay, look, from next week on, I have to take medication. And then this, this is exactly what we want to highlight in the book is that we're taking these, these powerful drugs that are having all sorts of interpersonal effects, but we're not studying them seriously. And so part of our book is just a call for research. It's ringing the alarm bell saying we are massively prescribing uh, powerful drugs and, and we're not studying these effects. Now, how an SSRI can affect your relationship, it depends on the relationship and what's going on. So one example, suppose you're crippled with depression and you're unable to get out of bed and you're not participating in your relationship because you're too depressed. Well, if you're in the subset of people for whom antidepressant medication helps you function, allows you to get out of bed and participate in life in, mm -hmm. in a way that feels more true to your own Uh, values, mm -hmm. then it's possible it could be a, a, a relationship-enhancing drug. If, if now you're able to go on dates with your partner and so forth and, and interact with them in, in ways that are positive for the relationship. But for other people, especially if it has the side effect of libido, where they stop having sexual interest in their partner or anyone, um, insofar as sex is an important part of the romantic connection, then that could be a harm to the relationship. And then there's, as you alluded to, some evidence that for some people, SSRIs don't just have these low-level effects of Uh, dampening the sex drive or diminishing your own feelings of sadness, but they can block or blunt your higher level feelings, including feelings of care for others. Mm -hmm. And so if you're taking this drug, it may well soften your, your depression. And maybe that's the point of the drug, but if it also causes you to take your partner's feelings less seriously, that could be very damaging for a relationship. And so we have to be studying these effects rather than just shooting in the dark and stumbling around blindly. Yeah, I mean, it seems that, I mean, I hardly read anything about this so far. And, uh, but it seems like um, it, it's becoming like such a modern problem to solve, kind of. But I mean, just let's quickly come back to this MDMA couples therapy. So could you just tell a little bit about how this would look like, like in an ideal case, like you would have a therapist who knows about this and yeah. maybe there was a study like that would be interesting, I think, to, to hear about this. Definitely. So the first part is that the data needs to keep coming in. The initial studies that are being done right now are promising, and the initial treatment effects seem very powerful. So people seem to be having transformative experiences, whether it's with respect to post-traumatic stress disorder or in terms of how they relate to their romantic partner. Uh, so in some cases, people who are involved in these original trials will say, uh, you know, I've, I've, I went out on a date with my romantic partner for the first time in six years, or we felt like we were teenagers again, or we looked at each other with fresh eyes. And you can imagine if you've been with someone for 20 years or 30 years and yeah. you've fallen into a slump, that you, you go and you, you know, un undergo this, this special experience, and all of a sudden you're looking around the world with a sense of open-mindedness and a sense of uh, newness. And mm -hmm. so that seems to be um, what the initial results suggest. But Let's suppose that further work is done and we get a better sense of which doses are safe and which kinds of effects need to follow. Then it should definitely be done under the guidance of a, of a trained professional, not only for simple medical reasons so that they can make sure the dose is pure and properly administered mm -hmm. and that if there are partly side effects, they can, be, they can be handled, but also because you need to have help potentially in, in integrating the insights you might get from a drug-enhanced therapy, therapy session into your, into your everyday life. 
if you throw out a bunch of stuff onto the table that normally you keep repressed and you're not normally willing to talk about, and then you're just stumbling around in that space without someone helping you work through it, it could potentially be damaging to a relationship mm-hmm. or to your own mental health. And so mm-hmm. having that professional guidance is going to be an important part of what needs to be established policy-wise going forward. So then you could have like a couple of sessions with a therapist. Let's say if you think as a couple, okay, let's get a divorce, but we're not kind of sure. You could just see an MDMA couple therapist and find out in well, negotiating. Exactly. So with the, with the PTSD trials, people will have something like three, maybe four sessions all okay. together. Yeah, okay. they, they, don't have, they don't have further sessions after that because oh, wow. the point okay. is, un, unlike many drugs where you take the drug and it just you have to keep taking it to re-up the effect and it's papering over the symptoms of, of your depression, let's say, in this case, what people are finding is that the therapy and the drug enhanced therapy sessions are helping people actually face the underlying issues, whatever those mm-hmm. might be, whether it's a trauma from a war experience or a sexual assault, or mm-hmm. just the everyday traumas from relationships. I mean, mm-hmm. I think people think of trauma as either you have some disorder or you don't, but trauma falls on a spectrum. And we all have many things from many walks of our lives that we keep under the surface because it's just maybe too painful or too threatening to, sure. to, sure. to handle. And if, if you actually deal with those issues, then maybe you go off your medications and you don't need to keep taking antidepressant pills. And that's indeed what's been shown pretty reliably in these initial PTSD studies. So a similar thing would be true for couples. They wouldn't just be taking MDMA together for the rest of their lives. Yeah. But rather, they may have two or three sessions with a therapist and then maybe they've solved the underlying problem or maybe they can relate to each other in a, in a genuinely mm-hmm. new way where they have a new foundation for a further stage of the relationship. So, I mean, there are more articles now coming that say, for example, a family that trips together stays together, a couple that trips yeah. together stays together. Yeah. But I mean, of course, you mentioned also, um, because it's a very kind of profound scientific book also, that there's still, let's say, this kind of what you call it, like old world biological baggage, which right. I find super interesting, meaning that there will be always like hormonal, hormonal things related to relationships or like feminine and masculine, let's say, structures, how to behave in a relationship. So how, how does this actually change through psychedelics? Or like Because I, my, my experience in my psilocybin retreat was that I felt actually, let's say, even more, more feminine, classic feminine again than before. And, but I, the way I started to feel after a psychedelic, let's say, um, Re, reboot in that in that sense I felt actually way better than any other idea of being a feminine or of a female person than before so I find that super interesting definitely so part of what psilocybin seems to do is it it depresses well if you were using a Bayesian model of the brain where you're thinking what are your prior assumptions yeah. what are the categories you have of the world those things are built up from childhood and through learning and experience And once you have a category that works pretty well, like the category of male or female, or, or you may have other social categories into which you put people so you can more efficiently navigate the world, it's a useful heuristic to get around to save time and cognitive energy, but it also imposes a lot of structure on the world that may be a projection. And so if you take this drug, what it does is, as I say, it does, to an extent, reset some of those prior beliefs. It, men are like this, and women are like that, and you know, people in this social category are this way and that way. What the drug seems to do is to allow you to look at people with, as I said, fresh eyes as individuals potentially and look at yourself in a multidimensional way. And mm-hmm. Maybe you find that there's a better, a better way to conceive of, of your own identity as you move through uh, relationships going forward. So, so that is, that's part of what seems to happen with the drug. 
Um, so what, I think what also a lot of people um, are very interested in, I mean, because it's such an interesting, very revolutionary idea, is that there will be anti-love drugs, meaning that you could actually, you can make you, like we said earlier, we can make ourselves fall in love with, a, let's say, a psychedelic potion, but we could also make ourselves fall out of love. So that means like the old human idea of having like, total control over your feelings, which never works in the end, of course. But I mean, can, can you talk about this anti-love drug that I find that a super interesting um, approach that you researched? Yeah. It's, it seems like for the foreseeable future, whether in a pro-love or anti-love way, we're not going to have total control over what happens. What these drugs do is they, they load the dice. They affect the chance that love may develop. It increases the likelihood that you may... Uh, lose your attachment to a, an abusive partner, let's say, if that's what your goal is. So, um, so it's all about nudges and uh, uh, aiding other processes rather than a kind of a chemical determinism, as we as we talked about before. But in terms of anti-love drugs, so um, the, the first thing that we highlight is that there's there's fear that any such thing could be used in a in a coercive or an abusive way. So there's a long history of human societies trying to tamper with people's biology to try to make them quote-unquote normal. So mm -hmm. you can just think of sexual orientation minorities who have long been exposed to all sorts of measures, some of which have been biologically based, to try to convert their sexual orientation to what's perceived as normal or appropriate. And so the first thing we want to do with, with these technologies is think about what are the ethical limits to their use? What are the boundaries that should be drawn around them? And one is we say they should never be used coercively, never be used on children, for example. Um, but suppose you have an, a, an autonomous adult, somebody who's in a relationship that's objectively bad. And let's say everyone agrees. They, they think it's bad. Their friends mm -hmm. think it's bad. Some sort of sophisticated therapist would say, this is an abusive or a harmful relationship. You ought to leave the relationship. And let's say they agree with that. Well, many people find themselves in, in the position where they feel irresistibly emotionally attached to their partner, even though they know they shouldn't be. And in that case, you have you have... Uh, a reason it would be rational for you to try to limit your uh, attachment to the partner. And there are already drugs, as we've discussed, that can, to some extent, help with that un under certain conditions. And it's, uh, it's uh, well, there's different ones, but the one that we've uh, talked about the most are, are these same SSRIs because of their ability to dampen libido and also block feelings of care and concern for the other person's um, perspective and emotions, which if you're trying to get out of a relationship, that may be something that will help you do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, and there's also, I should say, just before I forget, there's this new work that's being done to try to change the way that your memories work with respect to relationships. So suppose you've left one. Yeah, many people are familiar with the film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, mm -hmm. which is a dramatization of the idea that you try to delete the very memories of the person that you have because of the trauma of getting out of this relationship and you don't want to keep reflecting on it. Now, that's, that's kind of a tragedy, that film. It's a very sad film, and it, it shows that partly we need our memories. We need to be able to reflect on what happened in the past, partly so that we don't repeat the, the same mistakes that we made. And we shouldn't just be trying to delete all of our memories. I mean, like, very interesting to me is that you can actually that have drugs or already, like, study drugs that work on the so-called, like, lust system. And um, so kind of that you no longer, you would no longer be attracted to other people. But, um, and I found this also very interesting that you made that very specific decision, like a um, explanation if it comes to men and women that could, that they could be attached to one person, attracted to someone else, 
and lusting after another. And I mean, <laughs> I really like that you also do this for men and women and like, yeah, well, men are like this and women are always, always want to be married and like, then that's it. So, I mean, I feel this is never really addressed or like in a very kind of, yeah, kind of not my very unpleasant way often. But right. so this would actually relate also to this whole topic of um, can you actually medicate lust, actually? Right, right. So there's a number of biological theories of love, but, but a common one suggests that underlying what we talk about when we say I'm in love or we have poetry or songs or, or mm -hmm. plays that are discussing romantic relationships, there's different ways you can characterize those things from a psychological and cultural level. But underneath all of that, there's some shared biological machinery And, and one view is that there's a, a lust or a libido component, and that serves an ancient evolutionary purpose of just drawing us toward potential mates. If we didn't have some drive to meet with each other, we, we obviously wouldn't be here. Uh, then there's an attraction system, which narrows our focus to a smaller potential a, a number of mates, maybe one in particular. And then the attachment system kicks in often around the activities relating to, to parenting. And the idea there is just that human offspring are vulnerable, more so than any other uh, animal species offspring, and so it would have been uh, uh, conducive to the, to the reproductive success of our ancestors if the parents stayed together long enough to raise vulnerable children. And so we're all equipped with these underlying systems, as I say, men and women alike. Mm -hmm. And um, there's, there are often these, these stereotypes that are thrown around where it's, you know, men want to have sex with as many people as possible, and women are just trying to, you know, yeah. get men... I mean, that's such an, such an incredible word, actually, or expression that it sounds almost like, like a band or anything. <laughs> chemical breakup. <laughs> so what, what is a chemical breakup? What, what is the future of the chemical breakup? It's just, it's just a chemically-assisted pathway for achieving what people are trying to do already. So mm -hmm. uh, if you know that you need to leave a relationship but you find yourself totally drawn toward and attached to the person, then you, you can take actions right now to try to detach yourself. And mm -hmm. so one option that's been talked about for millennia is you might try dating other people. That's one thing people do because mm -hmm. then you're stimulating your sure. uh, yeah. romantic neurochemical chemical breakup yeah. or chemical breakup is, fits the logic of what we've been talking about all along, which is it's not that it would, it would replace the usual ways that people try to end relationships or recover from heartbreak. It's just that these drugs might be used in a way to facilitate those same practices. So mm -hmm. if it's a good idea for you to emotionally detach from someone because the relationship has ended and they've moved on to someone else or you need to move on or whatever it is, there's all sorts of things we do uh, in our everyday practices to try mm -hmm. to accomplish that. But for some people, they may find that they're unable to do it with the usual ways. They find that they cannot get over their ex-partner, for example, and they're obsessing over them or stalking them or some other sort of damaging behavior. And, and they know, and everyone knows, that they ought to, to move on. And so mm -hmm. if they're not able to do it through conventional means, and you could apply a drug that would more directly sever their feeling of attachment to their partner, well, then you can see how that might be um, a prudent thing for some people to do in the future if we, if we get these uh, chemical interventions more finely tuned. Mm -hmm. And maybe just like one um, last kind of outlook so, and I mean, I think about also about this a lot since I've experienced two psychedelic kind of uh, journeys with an assisted and a trip supervised surrounding. Um, so um, what do you think, how would you say is like the future um, of love and breakups in the com obviously coming times of psychedelics? How do you think this, 
that what will be the biggest change with our classic ideas of relationships and love and divorce and marriage and everything? One lesson that we hope people will take away from this discussion is that it might be a good idea to think of love as something that's not entirely out of our control. I think there's this 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 view of love that, that it's a kind of a fairy dust that falls on your head if you meet the right person and then you magically become mm -hmm. attached to them in some sort of way. And that same sort of attitude for people to surely give up on relationships when they don't feel that kind of magic. And so uh, if you think of love as something that you may be able to exercise some agency, Over or for some responsibility for, then when there's value in a relationship, it's worth pursuing. Instead of just throwing up your hands and say, saying, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Well, maybe there are some things you can do about it. Mm -hmm. And you can try to bring love back into a relationship that does have some value or take, take responsibility about ending a relationship when that needs to happen. But again, it's not going to be like a light switch. It isn't mm -hmm. that you'll decide a relationship is a good idea or a bad idea, and then you turn to the dial and voila, it's accomplished. It's, it's only going to be something that, as I say, can enhance or facilitate the sorts of processes that we already engage in, but it is going to potentially put love more under our agentic control. And we might think of ways in which that can possibly be a good thing rather than something to be feared. Okay. Well, that was, I mean, um, very interesting in a very short time. There's so many questions in theory that people will have if they listen to this. I'm sure. I mean, I have them definitely because I think, I think it's really very rare that, I mean, there's so many books like around, you know, everything, related to love and future relationships, blah, blah. But most of them are kind of, I mean, this is kind of such interesting material because it's also on the way to be scientifically proven with certain trials related to MDMA or even psilocybin and everything. That, that was really important to us because, yeah, you could do a science fiction book where you speculate about, suppose there were a pill that had some sort of magical effect. And yeah. Thought, well, we don't do that. I mean, anybody can write science fiction. So we, we tried to be very closely tied to what we have scientific reason to believe is either happening now or will be possible in your future. Yeah. I appreciate that you picked up on that. Yeah. No, it's great. Thank you so much. <laughs>